Attention, the Bone Hand Heavy Half Hour may have bad words in it. Know this. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Heavy Half Hour for the week of August 30th, 2010. I'm Steve, your host, and usually I fly solo, but this week we've got something special. Joining me on the Heavy Half Hour is Sean the Butcher Smithson, horror writer extraordinaire and fixture of Bay Area 80s thrash. How you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing good, Steve. How are you? Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. It's cool to be here. So, Play some music and uh, be your first guest, I guess, is what you yeah, were talking about. Absolutely, me, so. yeah. So, uh, without further ado, let's rock.
As if you didn't know. Tell us who that was, Sean. That was Exodus with their classic song, Bonded by Blood, a song that's very near and dear to my heart. That is a fantastic cut, man, and a great way to kick off the show. So we might as well get right into it. Bullet points. So, Sean, tell me about your involvement in Bay Area Thrash. Um, Well, it started when I was probably... About 13 or 14, right before the thrash movement started, there was an old club in San Francisco called the Old Waldorf. Fired up this thing called Metal Mondays. And the first one was actually this band called Anvil Chorus. We're back in action now. Check them out on MySpace. Classical, very metal band. Okay. And uh, they opened for Motley Crue, for Motley Crue's first Bay Area appearance. And that was the first Metal Monday, and I heard about it on the radio station. I lived right near a BART station. Back then, the clubs were all ages, so mm. I got on the BART and I went. And uh, I fucking hated Motley Crue, and I loved Anvil Chorus. And then about two or three weeks later, maybe maybe longer, because I was, uh, it was a long, long time ago, uh, a little band called Metallica came up and opened for Laws Rockets. And uh, actually, Metallica, that's the first time I saw Metallica. They had been in town once before playing with Bitch, and they replaced Sarah Thumble, and I didn't see that, but... Uh, but boy, when they played Bill Waldorf, and that just changed everything. And then, as everybody knows, he eventually moved up to the Bay Area, got Cliff Burton, and uh, that whole scene kicked off. Back then, actually, actually, it sounded more like Iron Maiden. Really? So yeah, that back was... when they still had Kirk in the band, it was uh, a lot of high-end stuff and very squiddly, squiddly, and it wasn't nearly uh, as crushing as they became. It's awesome stuff. You can find the demos pretty easy online, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a miracle of Google and all that stuff, but yeah, they were more Maiden influence, and uh, everything kind of, the balls dropped after Metallica moved up, and <laughs> especially after they started riding the, uh, riding the Ride the Lightning stuff, and after the Kill em All for One Tour with Raven, and it suddenly, it was just kind of on. And so that's when so. you started hearing tunes from Exodus, like Piranha? Yeah, yep, actually I saw Exodus's uh, first show with Rick Hunolt, their classic co-guitar player, who's right, uh, no longer with yeah. them right now, they have Lee Altus from Heaven, but uh, I saw them open for uh, Loudness from Japan, Loudness is first. <laughs> Crazy yeah, Nights, that was a hilarious song. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's like, seriously, if, if you go back and uh, and check out like their first three or four albums, it's a completely different band. Like, uh, there's an album called Law of Devil's Land that I still listen to. Okay. And uh, if you listen to it, Akira Takasaki, their guitar player, was so obviously a major influence on... A dime bag, Daryl. That it's it's ridiculous. Oh wow! Right down to the shape of the guitar and stuff like that. That's really cool. To yeah, know. yeah. I was I was lucky to see a lot of those shows. And back then, when the clubs were all ages, you know, it was a, it was a lot different. It was a different era. So when did you first start playing okay. music yourself? Well, uh, I had started doing a little fanzine that I never really got off the ground, and I interviewed a bunch of bands who were then burgeoning, who are now. Venom and Anthrax and all those guys that ran my mom's film bill up and uh, 
and just kind of through osmosis, you know, of course, I was like, wow, I want to do this too. This looks like fun. I had already started strumming, you know, mm-hmm. uh, when I was about 13 or 14. And then around the age of 15, I got really serious about it. That's my late 15, early 16 is really when I became obsessed with Exodus. Exodus started getting heavy, and I started cutting school to listen to Exodus bootlegs and just play my guitar incessantly. Mm-hmm. And that's how I got into it. And then uh, you know, through a weird turn of events, I moved out of the ghetto I lived in in Oakland and to uh, a predominantly white area, a town called Martinez, and within a couple of days had hooked up with a band called Sacrilege BC. We eventually did an album called Party With God. And uh, yeah, from from then on out, it just kind of took off. Uh, we, you know, we played Ruthies a lot, kind of when Exodus, who also came out of Ruthies in, they kind of took off and were no longer the local band that you could see twice a month. We kind of took over for them at Ruthies in, which was the, the birthplace of Bay Area Thrash and true crossover, in my opinion. Yeah, so, you know, we played with, like, the Cro-Mags and GBH and Sang and Suicidal Tendencies and Slayer and, like, every band that came through, we, we pretty much supported. And then we got kind of tired of the metal scene and gravitated towards the hardcore scene. Our brother band was uh, a band that's that's pretty well known now called Neurosis. Oh, cool. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They had their foot in the metal scene kind of via us and vice versa until we should have just said fuck the metal scene because it was all testament and death angel and stuff like that and uh you know not just like those guys are great bands but we weren't into the white high tops and the tight jeans mm-hmm. and the long thick hair we were wearing flannels around our asses <laughs> and not shaving and not bathing as much as we should and just kind of you know berkeley heathen scum at that point very cool well why don't we check out a little yeah. sacrilege bc what is this song called this is called Board of Hell from the debut album Party with God. i 
Once again, that was Sacrilege BC with Born of Hell. Where can you get that, man? Um, you can go to www.novemberfire.com, uh, which is a horror t-shirt company now that our old singer from Sacrilege, Stephen Taylor, runs. And uh, what you just heard was actually the remaster he just did. That album was done in 85, and recently he took the masters and cleaned them up and got them all shiny and polished for the digital age and now you can go to novemberfire.com and buy it and please do he dropped a whole bunch of money doing it (laughs) shout out fantastic all right so then what came next after sacrilege we see uh, a lot of beer drinking and pot smoking and then (laughs) i got a call from uh an old friend of mine named ron nichols who uh, had been doing some stuff in a, a hardcore band called christ on parade and him and his friend Aiden, who was in a band called Crypt Shrine on Lookout Records for, like, if you're an Op IV fan or stuff like that, they were part of that whole thing. And uh, They got together, and Ron called me, because I had been a bass player in Sacrilege, but Ron had heard some practice tapes of us where I'd been singing some Bad Brain songs. And he called me and said, dude, you know, I, I really like your singing, and why don't you sing for my band? And, and I was like, well, you know, I didn't get a chance to play guitar in Sacrilege. I'm really a guitarist. I want to play guitar, so why don't you do both? I had never really seriously pursued being a vocalist, so tacking that on top of of being a guitar player was at first challenging, but uh, strangely enough, we got signed very, very quickly. Um, Our friend Mike Moraski from another old band called Steel Pole Bathtub was doing some stuff with the venerable Rough Trade Records over in Europe, you know, for like the Smiths. Butthole and Matthew Star and the Butthole Surfers. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, they're kind of the house that the Smiths built. And Grinch was it was not a thrash band by any stretch. It was a band where we all decided, I was very into melodic stuff. I've always been a huge Cheap Trick fan. Uh, I was really into Soundgarden, who were brand spanking new and still a club band at that point. And that Nirvana had barely come out with Bleach. And uh, I tentatively say it was on the same page of that stuff in the, in the fact that it wasn't a million miles an hour and there were actually vocal melodies involved in the songs and uh so mike moraski from still pole did a, a demo with us and um after we've been together like six weeks because we we wrote really quick me and ron the bass player we kind of split the writing duties and uh and really attacked it and after six weeks we did our demo and rough trade got a hold of it and signed us immediately which uh i think kind of turned out to be a little bit of a bad thing because we were in the studio a little prematurely we did an album for them grinch the blacking factory mm-hmm. which, uh, you can find online it's it's kind of hard to find and uh, it's it's way way out of print but if you're a machine head fan it also features uh features chris contos on drums he's the guy on burn my eyes you know in attitude adjustment so it's kind of four old guard bay area guys coming together and doing something different together that they hadn't done before you know so mm-hmm. that's what sure. grinch was all about you know this is the Cockerer Worm off the Blacking Factory by Grinch. Fingers, but it's You're denied. School 
Once again, that was Conqueror Worm. I like the fact, Born of Hell, Conqueror Worm. We're already seeing your horror interest coming to the fore. Is that correct? Oh, man. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's always <laughs> been there. I mean, I was the first movie I remember seeing is Todd Browning's Dracula. And, yeah, I was born in Baltimore, and at a very young age, about three and a half, I was uh, being raised by a single mom, and a bunch of film students from Johns Hopkins lived in our building and kind of adopted me because I had seen 
I was run, I was running around in my in my terry cloth cape pinned around my neck, you know, pretending I was Superman of the yard. And I saw a neighbor. I thought he was playing with a toy, and uh, it was King Kong on the Empire State Building. And I was like, "Wow, where did he get that toy?" And I went up to his window and kind of called through and asked him. He goes, uh, "Well, I'm I'm making a movie." And I was like, well, "You know what?" And uh, he invited me in, and and uh, you know, my mom was out there with me, and she kind of said, "Yeah, it's cool." And he sat me down, and what he was doing was he was recreating the scene from Willis O'Brien's King Kong where he's swatting down the pipeline. Uh, yeah, sure. And he was doing stop motion animation. So from there, his name was Woody too, and I still, I gosh, I would give anything to find Woody again. <laughs> <laughs> I was barely four years old, and he turned me on to Ray Harryhausen, um, showed me the Omega Man, like we used to sit outside. Uh, at night during the summer with popcorn and cream soda and when they show these movies like once a year you know yeah, sure. the two years that he was in my life and his friends and then they started dragging me to revival screenings to college like I can very very clearly remember seeing Mothra and the fall of the House of Usher by Roger Corman at, oh, uh, at the university and really liking Mothra and being really antsy and bored during Usher because you know I was, I was <laughs> sure, yeah. fucking four years old and uh <laughs> These are the things that I grew up on. And then, of course, growing up in Baltimore and Oakland and uh, having a very lenient mother who understood I was able to contextualize things like extreme violence in section movies at a very young age. She allowed me, I drew, you know, I was drawing and all that kind of stuff. She, she allowed me to see a lot of stuff other kids weren't allowed to see. Uh, she made a few mistakes. She said taking me to see The Exorcist when I was six was a mistake. <laughs> yeah, um, maybe. Yeah. Okay, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I saw Mark of the Devil when it first came out when I was a little kid. I took my lunch to school, in grammar school, in one of the barf bags, you know, and uh-huh. the teacher sent <laughs> home a note. Yeah. So it's always been a huge, a huge, huge part of what I love in art. Yeah, well, it's, you know, yeah. and horror and metal has always been such a great marriage, you know. Oh, gosh, yeah. You know, it, it's from the minute the first Black Sabbath album was released and, and yeah. that rain and those bells start, you know. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, through through Maiden to Cannibal Corpse, it just, the whole way, you have these great horror moments throughout metal that is one of the things that I've really enjoyed about the music, you know, just another thing. Yeah, it's it's fun, man, you know, and we can ask for more than that. Absolutely. Aside from the horror influences, what what other bands did you find influenced you in the Bay Area scene? Oh, holy God. Um, Absolutely. The early days of Metallica, like mm-hmm. I said, you know, barring what they've become and how huge they are and how homogenized they are, it was uh, it was fucking magical when they first moved up. And then when Exodus just started pushing the envelope of just getting heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier and kind of almost reacting against Metallica doing Fade to Black as Kirk and James are writing more accessible stuff, Gary Holt is just, you know, in the lab, just concocting the heaviest shit he can come up with. Those two things were extremely influential. Uh, A radio show called Rampage Radio, uh, KUSF, the University of San Francisco, which is still going on. So if you go to KUSF.com or whatever it is, you can probably get a stream on Saturday nights. But man, there was a dude who ran that show back then named Ron Quintana. And uh, he's a guy who named Metallica. He did yeah, that. Yeah, was, was he actually called Metal Mania? Was he a guitar player as well? 
No, not at all. Oh, okay. No, he's a he's a fanzine guy who started DJing at the college, and uh, you know, playing Metallica live rehearsals on the air, Exodus live rehearsals on the air. You know, if the bands weren't signed, he's the first one in the states to play the Ingve demos when Ingve was still like sixteen and living in Sweden and doing these four, six, and eight tracks at his home. Um, yeah, Ron Quintana. And, and many, many people's huge influence from the Bay Area because he exposed us to everything. Merciful Fate, which is like my Led Zeppelin, old Merciful Fate, like mm-hmm. Melissa, Don't Break the Oath, like oh, super yeah. into old hardcore, uh, the old DRI stuff, like dealing with it, COC um, <laughs> animosity. Oh gosh, the list just goes on. Then, you know, weirder stuff like Diamante Gallus, uh, soundtrack guys like Lalo Schifrin, and Zen of the Dragon, I listen to almost on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. I think it's just a rocking record. But yeah, Exodus, Metallica, um, and let's get into a song by a band that I want to turn people on to that is back in action now. Uh, they're called Fang. Can we play a song by Fang? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do this. Okay, this is called Diary of a Mad Werewolf. And uh, it's old, it's from the early 80s, and it's totally kick-fucking ass. And they just don't make them how they used to, man. Bang, the rad shit.
right. Diary of a Mad Werewolf by Fang. Very cool tune, man. I fucking love that song, man, and I fucking love Fang. Check them out. Land Shark and Where the Wild Things Are. Their first two albums. Amazing. Cool. Next up, then, you had another band you were in, correct? Yeah. Uh, I actually, after Grinch, I, uh, I kind of stopped playing music for a while and moved up north and then ended up back in the Bay Area and uh, hooking back up with an old cohort who uh, was doing an Aussie tribute. And I swore I was never going to play again. And by that point, I was chewing my own arm off because I was dying to play. And so I moved back home while my friends are playing and are in bands. And I'm watching them like, fuck, I want to do this again. And uh, <laughs> an old cohort of mine had actually hooked up with an Aussie impersonator. And while I don't like tribute bands, this guy was so fucking Aussie that Lemmy thought he was Ozzy. Really? <laughs> yeah, like, at first, you know, it took a minute. And uh, some guy from uh, up in Northern California, man, who really had it down, and so me and my pal, uh, who was uh, Chris Contos, again, who had been in Grinch, and uh, this was after he was out of Machine Head and had been in a rock band called The Servants, uh, which is how they found Izzy Osborne, the Ozzy impersonator. <laughs> so we started jamming with him, and it was, uh, it was me on bass and Chris on drums, the Aussie impersonator, and then Jude Gold from Guitar Player Magazine was our guitar player, and that got me all into it again. And, uh, you know, I was like, wow, this is kind of fun. And then the drummer was going to do some work for hire for a couple of guys on their demo that they were trying to get together. It turned out I knew the singer from way back in the day who was a local tattoo artist, and they're like, well, why don't you play bass on it too? Just and I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'll just come in and we'll just do this demo. And then within a week and a half, we were just completely crushing it out six hours a night, every night at the rehearsal studio, and turned around and decided that what we were doing was moving too fast and gaining too much ground to ignore, so we decided to go ahead and make it a real band, and then we named ourselves, and it was Songaree Eterna, and we went into uh, Trident Studios in... California, where a bunch of classic death little bands have been done, and worked with Juan Ortega from Vile, and mm -hmm. came up with this. This is what we jokingly called our ballad. <laughs> this is Swine <laughs> of the Times off our unreleased demo. Check it out. Hope you guys like it.
So, Sangre Eterna, is that the title of the horror movie as well? Yeah, yeah. That's what I thought. Can... How long were you guys playing together before you recorded? Because it sounds like it all came together fairly quickly. Yeah, it all came together real quick, man. Like I said, uh, the whole goal of the project at first was to just get that demo done so these two guys would have uh, a completed project where they could go and flush their band out and find permanent members. After doing the work and having the fun and getting back in the groove, we all just decided fuck it it's a band now let's just stay together and uh and we started pushing the demo really hard for a while um but as quickly as the band came together it also burned itself out you know a couple of friendships died people were hitting their 40s going in different directions <laughs> the drummer i was actually watching subtitled movies at practice because at that point i, I had already started writing for dreadcentral.com and I was getting some of my viewing out of the way while we were playing <laughs> subtitle movies, and the, and the drummer got angry and threw his drumsticks at me and said, if you like movies so fucking much, why don't you go make them? And respectfully, you know, I stopped, and I, I said, oh, my God, you're right, and, I, and uh, I took him at his word. It didn't really make me angry at all. I was just like, he made me have the epiphany that I needed to have, and I said, yeah, you're right. You know, I'm not getting any younger, and if I'm going to be broke doing something I love, I want to be broke doing the thing I love most. Yeah, <laughs> and absolutely. and these days, that's film. And like I say, from, you know, a tyke, it was my first love. And I, music was a 25-year distraction. Yeah, That's a good yeah. way to go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, a, a friend joked and said that uh, he's going to make sure we put on my tombstone. I saw that when it was in the theaters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love it. I can't get enough. So I, I bailed. The band broke up, and uh, everybody kind of went on to other things. And many of them are still playing and, and doing fine, and I'm doing fine. And I decided to take up writing a lot more seriously and started working at Dread Central and... Uh, 
did a pilot for a show called Nightmare Alley, which was kind of like my creature features thing. Because, you know, I decided I wanted to get into movies, but I didn't really have any contacts. But I'm lucky to have an encyclopedic knowledge of the genre. So mm -hmm. I got a camera guy, devised the show, and decided to try to kind of make my own side door into the industry. Because, uh, you know, I figured if I could get next to some of these people, I could... I could start forming relationships and figuring out if there was a place for me in the industry. Yeah, that was and, where uh, I, I first uh, found out about you, was I saw your uh, Nightmare Alley segment at Crypticon a couple of years ago and really enjoyed that. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, you saw that. Yeah, you know, and uh, there's still some, there's some other episodes in the can, and we were careful to make them so they weren't time-sensitive, and... Uh, it's not a dead project. Um, I'm looking for someone who uh, loves to do post effects because it needs some bells and whistles and mm -hmm. stuff like that. But uh, once I find that guy, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull it out of mothballs, man. You know, cool. very cool. It's still there. Well, in the meantime, you're doing a series of a film series right now, correct? Yes, I am in Tacoma, Washington, at the Grand Cinema. Very excited. So tell me about it. Uh, well, what it is, is uh, there's a film series in Toronto that my friend and editor-in-chief at Fangoria, where I do some writing, um, their editor, Chris Alexander, is doing uh, a thing called Film School Confidential. And uh, he came and hung out at Crypticon last year, and we did some stuff together. And I told him, yeah, man, I want to start doing a film series, too. And he said, why don't you just, you know, adopt the name, and we can have another chapter open, and it'll just be kind of cool and fun and and I was like, that sounds great. So, uh, so I hung the Film School Confidential name on it, and uh, I've been dealing right now with Grindhouse Releasing. I'm bringing up 35mm print of Lucio Fulci's The Beyond, which is a complete classic supernatural thriller, you know, nightmare logic, and just fucking crazy Italian <laughs> the horror cinema with, like, eyeball gouging and and uh, weird segues that halfway don't make sense but insane it just makes them that much more nightmarish and uh insane yeah, tarantula so. attacks yeah yeah that's so <laughs> funny right i didn't know tarantulas ate human flesh i had no idea but you won't find more <laughs> blood on the floor than in that scene but they do and we've seen the movie so we're here yeah. to tell everybody that it's true and if you haven't seen the movie come find out for yourself just how much human flesh uh, tarantula can consume <laughs> well uh grindhouse releasing does a fantastic job i actually own the dvd version of the beyond and their uh their rendition of pieces and cat in the brain and they're all just beautiful yeah. versions so i gotta imagine oh, the 35 yeah. millimeter version of what they're doing looks just fantastic and it'll be great to see oh, on the big screen it's gonna be amazing dude and to see a film like that with an audience who also adores the same type of thing is magical and and all too rare right now <laughs> you know um yeah, sure. so that's also the thing we're going to try to do is um i love revival theaters but they kind of just still bring you in and they kind of just roll the movie i'm going to do some talking beforehand give away some prizes uh, i'm working on bringing some spectacle to it it's gonna be like some on-stage contest i'm going to get the audience members up on stage. I've got like a group of crazy girls called uh, the Gorgor Girls doing like my usherette stuff, and we're gonna be planning some weird, you know, almost performance art 
shit before the movies, and uh, it's going to get stranger and stranger. <laughs> so the series itself will be going somewhere as well. If you, if you start attending now, a year from now, you'll be like, wow, I can't believe it's developed into this. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I want to fucking have midgets and dudes on stilts and guys in gorilla suits and beanie propeller hats running around. That sounds like it's going to be a blast, man. Yeah, I want it to be insane. And uh, encourage audience participation, you know, uh, uh, assuming that it's an appropriate film. But also, more than just the gory horror stuff, it is film school confidential, and it is genre inclusive, and I am going to be getting into things like Shaw Brothers martial arts films and cool old, like, uh, late 70s, early 80s action films. Like, I'm looking for a movie called White Line Fever right now, starring Jan Michael Vincent from 75, where he plays this very honest trucker back from the military and finds out that a crooked trucking company has taken over his beloved small town and he ain't standing for it. And uh, it's like Death Wish meets Convoy. So, you know, you'll see stuff like that, too. That sounds like a uh, lot of fun, man. It's just all the shit I grew up seeing in movie theaters like the Roxy in Oakland and the Mayfair in Baltimore, you know? So when will you be screening The Beyond? Uh, the Beyond will be September 3rd, which is a Friday, at 9.09 p.m., and September 4th, which is a Saturday, at 9.09 p.m. And I think we are going to add a late afternoon Sunday matinee for The Hangover crowd. <laughs> so uh, anybody listening who wants that option to be there, please frequent this first <laughs> Hangover Sunday. That way I can keep bringing it back. There you go. And also, you know, for people who don't want to be out late or or who are busy over the weekend or, or who maybe want to bring their kid, um, even though a lot of this stuff is rated R, I'm not showing anything that I think is confusing or offensive. Most of this stuff, even though it might be gory, I would not say is inappropriate for uh, the 13 and up crowd, as long as they have a taste for, for this type of thing. And an uh, active parent who's there to discuss it with them and explain the latex. And the tarantulas. Yeah. And the tarantulas. And the, that's not human flesh. That's latex. <laughs> yep, exactly. And, but you shouldn't eat latex either. Yeah, no, no that can't be good. For yeah, it's, it's toxic. Washington is far too green for, <laughs> for that kind of toxicity. All right, man. Yeah. Well, thank yeah. you very much for joining us tonight. Uh, I really appreciate yeah, getting both your insight into, you know, the, the Bay Area thrash scene of the 80s and then also uh, what you've got going on with the horror movie world. It's great stuff. Hey, thanks, man. And uh, if I can throw a couple of shout-outs real quick. Please do. Um, please go and read twitchfilm.net. It's probably the best all-inclusive, you know, uh, as far as genre. You know, they do uh, everything from art films to martial art films to horror films. Twitchfilm.net. Uh, read dreadcentral.com, the best horror film site on the net. And please, if you're not already... Start picking up Fangoria Magazine again. There's a new sheriff in town. His name is Chris Alexander, and he's completely turned the magazine around. I grew up on Fangoria as a little kid, and then uh, it kind of fell on on dark days. And now there's there's some new blood pumping through the veins, and I'm glad to be a part of that. And I'm very proud of where the magazine is going. So please, if you see it at Barnes & Noble, snap it up off the rack, man. Help us out right now. Yeah, Keep absolutely. And if uh, 
You want to hear more from Chris Alexander, give a listen to episode 49 of the Bone Bat Show. I interviewed him at Crypticon Seattle, and the guy's energy is just so invigorating. You're going to want to run out and buy Fangoria immediately after hearing that interview. Yeah, and you know, you can search him on YouTube, too, because uh, he, he does these weird little like movie reviews, and he pops up on Canadian MTV talking about uh, genre films, too, and Boy, you, you're, you're right. I actually got involved with the magazine because uh, right after he took over as editor-in-chief, I've been reading him for years in Rue Morgue, and then uh, he's the reason I started picking up Fangoria again when he started writing over there. And, dang, he became the editor-in-chief, and I checked out an interview on the Dead Pit podcast, and some things that were coming out of his mouth who, from my brain through his mouth, a total brother from another mother, I called him up. I said, hey, man, I'd like to do an interview with you as well. Because, again, we both have a love for a lot of other cinema outside of horror. Mm-hmm. And uh, he teaches film history over in Toronto, too, as a, as a sidekick. So he's, his, his base knowledge of cinema overall is vast. And we really connected on that. And uh, so I was going to do this huge in-depth interview with him, talking about you know the birth of cinema and German expressionism and all that kind of that heady stuff. And one thing led to another, and before we had a chance to do the interview, he was uh, having me write. You know, I pitched him, I asked him, what are the proper channels to pitch through? He said, hit me up directly, what do you got? And I I threw an idea past him that he really liked, and he, six hours later, he was having me write it for the magazine. And uh, we kind of haven't stopped since, so I'm very grateful to him for that. That's very cool. Because, boy, that magazine meant so much to me growing up, it was ridiculous, it was... It was one of the reasons I, I got up in the morning <laughs> when, I, you know, when I was a teenager. Yeah, sure. Well, before we get into our last tune, uh, just a couple of last notes, as always. If you have any comments, questions, or insults, hurl them in to steve at bonan.com or give us a call at 425-296-6557, and we will address your concerns on the next episode. As always, all the songs played on the Heavy Half Hour are used with the permission of the artist and or label, so thank you very much for the artist for making that happen. What are we going to hear last tonight, Sean? Let's check something out by my buddy Killjoy and his band Necrophasia from Harvest Ritual. This is called 13 Demon Street. Fuck yeah, Killjoy. Shout out, bro. See you soon. And until next time, keep it heavy. You're listening to FM 666, the station with real guts. Up next, we have those bastard children of horror and gore, Necrophagia, with their new crypt single, London 13 Demon Street.
Beneath 